Okay, are we here? Okay. I said some things earlier, and I'm not going to repeat any of it. But I'm going to share a haiku, a non-haiku, I'd say. And you can count the syllables. So it won't be a haiku, what I'm sharing this morning. Um, praise the Lord. Anyway, happy Father's Day. Also, uh, I don't know if you're aware, but uh, Elena and Nathan have share the same birthday. It's their birthday. She made reference to it. And apparently, Nathan, you're a triplet. Is that right? So there's actually four birthdays in the family on the same day. Wow, okay, you guys got to remember this day, and this is really important. So somebody said it's tradition to sing. Is that what we do? Okay, all right, ready? What are your siblings' names, just so we can throw them in there? David and Jonathan, we should remember that, okay? Those are two great people in the Bible. All right, okay, ready? Happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you. Dear Lana, Nathan, Jonathan, happy birthday to you. All right, good. <laughs> that took a lot of work. Okay, praise the Lord. Hey, I want to share with you uh, here this morning, we've been talking this month about kind of a new way of thinking. And uh, for those of you that have been here every week, you've seen something where we're trying to take a little different perspective on how we view uh, the world around us and the Lord himself and and uh, the very first week we talked about the fact that you can't always just rely upon your senses or your spiritual background that, uh, that the Lord surprises us. In fact, I remember uh, I was not raised in a Christian home, and I remember the first time I started reading the Bible shortly after I gave my life to Christ as an 18-year-old, I was reading, and I said, well, that doesn't make sense, or I don't know where this is going, but all of you, you know, anybody who's raised in the church would know where that was going, but you would think, boy, this ended up in a different place than I was anticipating. Anybody ever surprised by a story, how it ends in the, in the Bible? I mean, just read the, the book of Esther and you go, wow, we didn't see that coming. And you'll, you'll see those kinds of stories appear over and over again. Uh, last week then we talked about the, Jesus' view of the cross is very different than our view of the cross. Jesus didn't look at the cross, he looked beyond it and through it. Um, this week I want to talk about the issue of size or magnitude, uh, the way we look at it and the way that God looks at it. And, and uh, I put down there, I think, uh, the, the idea that size matters. Of course, that kind of can be taken in a, in a profane way in today's culture. I want to talk about it in a very different way. The size is very important to the Lord. It really is. Um, we like things big. The bigger, the better. You know, I remember there's a place in Indiana where we spent uh, part of our time in the last 15 years or so. I uh, have a condo back there and had a condo, and we would travel around. And there was a restaurant you'd go into, and they had a they had a 72-ounce steak, and if you could eat it, uh, you got your meal for free. So, um, and also, you got sick for the rest of the day, probably. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's, it's, it's the bigger is better type of a thing. Most of us would probably be more impressed and pay more money to go all the way down and see the Grand Canyon than you would to see the teeming life under the Pakistander plant behind your uh, house. Because size is really important to us. Most people, when they go out on the ocean to, to do watching, they don't typically go watch triggerfish unless they want to go swimming, and they see that incidentally along the way. If you're in Hawaii or the Bahamas or somewhere else, uh, we lived in the Philippines, and they were just marvelous places for us to snorkel, but most of the people pay big bucks to go whale watching because they're big, they're huge, they're magnificent, and that's kind of the way we're oriented. 
We start thinking in terms of size being important, and we think in terms of the bigness of things. Um, here's the kicker. Whoops, you told me to stay put, so I'm going to stay put. Um, apparently, uh, those of you that are online, sometimes you hear my voice, but you don't see my body. But that's fine. If that happens, you'll be better off. Um, so uh, to the, it wasn't until probably about 10 or 15 years ago that I was, I was noticing uh, something in Scripture. I started thinking about this idea of magnitude. And of course, God does phenomenally big things. When God does it, it's huge, right? I mean, he does the creation. He transforms humanity. He makes everything that we see. He's prepared uh, heaven for us to spend an eternity with him. Its magnitude is beyond description, uh, and uh, the, uh, what we will see and experience in heaven is far beyond anything you can ask or imagine. In fact, his grace is so big and his love is so big, it says it surpasses knowledge. That's Ephesians chapter 3. It says his peace passes our under ability to understand. That's in Philippians chapter 4. And it says the joy that he can give inside a believer is glorious and inexpressible. In other words, you don't even have the ability to say what God does in the heart of a person. So when it comes to what God does, it's magnificent, enormous, and big, and endless. There's not an end to what he does. Are you with me? Okay, three of you are. So that's good. For the rest of you that haven't had the privilege of experiencing the Lord, when we come to, by, to him by faith, we experience this marvelous magnitude of everything that God is and what he promised. His promises are great. And he's great, and he's greatly to be praised, right? Amen. Thank you. Thank you. That's, that's more like it. However, when you read about anybody that has a whole lot to offer, has something really big, something magnificent, oh, people like, say, Pharaoh or Nebuchadnezzar or, any, or Herod, there are a lot of people in the Bible, that have lots to offer. They have a lot of wealth. They have a lot of power. They have a lot of influence. They, their, uh, the span of their influence transcends beyond their culture. And you know, you're not going to find one of those, not one of them, anywhere in the Bible that uh, really amounted to anything. In fact, most of them are in, in bad straits, and we find uh, their, their punishments are there. Now, the, for anybody that's saying, well, yeah, but what about Abraham and Moses, et cetera, et cetera? That's not how they started. It's not what God saw in them wasn't the greatness that they came to him with, but it was the greatness that God could put in them and still in them. Size matters to the Lord, but it matters in the inverse way. It matters uh, in a sense of smallness. That's what God is looking for. And you'll see it over and over and over and over again. When, God, uh, when Jesus wants to give a demonstration of what stewardship really is, and uh, so what does he use? He uses a widow who's poor, who only has two small coins, and, when, and it tells us all the wealthy were coming up to the temple steps, and they were putting their dollars in the treasury, so to speak, their, the denarii that they had and the shekels, et cetera, that they had to give. And this woman, Jesus singles her out and uses her as the everlasting example and model of stewardship, and she had almost nothing. Okay, so the stewardship angle is that. The one miracle that we see occur in all four of the Gospels, um, anything outside of the birth or death narrative that occurs there that Jesus does something extraordinary, 
And you'll see it in all four Gospels, uh, Gospel of John as well as the Synoptics. You'll, you'll see that it's the uh, feeding of the 5,000 people. And let me tell you something. If, uh, if that story <clears throat> included uh, a young boy, instead of having five loaves and two fish, he had an uncle that worked with Marriott Catering Company who had a semi that drove it up and backed up. Um, I guarantee you that story would not be in the Bible. What God was looking for was something so minute, so small, that he could transform it, though we couldn't. Now, when, when uh, we, we read stories about faith, there are four or five of them, but uh, one of them, I think we, we have a, a verse or two on the, on the screen here, it should be, in uh, Matthew chapter uh, 13, this is a parable of two things that are quite small, but Jesus uses them to demonstrate the potential magnitude of their involvement here. He says, he told them another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the, what kind of seed? The smallest. It's the smallest. So when Jesus is going to talk about faith, he starts small. He starts looking at that which is uh, hardly uh, noticeable. Yet when it grows, it's the largest garden plants and of the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. And just so, um, you know, we didn't get kind of miss this idea, Jesus then moves to another parable to talk about the kingdom of God, which, by the way, is enormous and it's eternal and it has no end. But the start of it with us and the contribution that, it, that Jesus is making at the time that seems imperceptible to people and odious to others. It says, he told them another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast, which you know is very small that you mix in with the flour. Uh, and a woman took and mixed it in with 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. And uh, Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So it was fulfilled that what was spoken through the prophets, I will open the mouths in my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. So in uh, Jesus' own words, he starts by taking something small, the stewardship issue, the boy with the loaf, and on and on it goes all the way through the Bible. He takes people that kind of look at him, those 12 disciples who were people that were despised in their own culture. We know that because in Acts, in the book of Acts chapter 4, uh, after this marvelous miracle that Peter and John were involved in, um, it tells us that the, the Sanhedrin, the, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law were amazed because these were ordinary, unschooled fishermen. In other words, they were small. Societally, they didn't have an impact. And guess which of all of the children, Samuel, or, through the Lord, uh, decided to ordain as the greatest king in the history of Israel. Took the youngest and smallest of all the brothers, sons of Jesse, it was David, who uh, Samuel himself couldn't recognize as somebody who had the potential to be used by the Lord. I mean, I could, I could spend all morning just doing this, but I, I think you get the point. You get the idea. Why is it that the small is so important to the Lord? I'm going to walk you through a few reasons that I believe this is extremely important for us to understand, and maybe by the end we'll be able to reevaluate our own offering to the Lord and what that looks like and how God uses that. The first reason why God is looking so intently at the small is it's in the small that we are qualified to participate in the great. 
It's in the small. Jesus says this in Luke chapter 16, verse 10, if you're taking notes and writing it down, which it looks like no one is. But uh, if, if you were taking notes, you'd write that verse down because it's a very good one. It says, the person who can be trusted with little will be entrusted with much. And the person who is dishonest with little will be dishonest with much. In other words, you give something small to somebody to see what they will do with it and if they will be faithful and if they will... You know, we do that with our children, don't we? We don't walk up to our kids and say, you know what, you know, to my oldest son, Luke, you're five years old now. You need to learn how to spend money. So I'm going to give you $5,000. I'm going to take you to the store and I want you to knock yourself out. No, we don't do that. What do we do? We give them a buck. We take them to the dollar store. We see what they buy or what they spend it on. We, we give them an allowance at a certain age maybe or uh, a reward for some of their chores that they do and then we teach them how to tithe, right? And so on that $5 they got, we, we teach them how to tithe the 50 cents, et cetera, et cetera. We do that. We know that. It, it's inbred in us that, you, that the small, what a person does with the small qualifies them for the great. So what happens if God says, well, I'm going to take somebody with lots of stuff and see what they do with it. Well, they've already developed their pattern. They've already de developed their, their habits, and they're there, and they don't qualify them for the great. It's the small that a person you know, can be qualified then to be entrusted with great. And that's what you see over and over again. The person who is faithful, God will entrust them with more and more. And, and the Apostle Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians. The whole idea is that faith then breeds something in us, and as it grows, then the Lord just continues to give us more opportunity to demonstrate faith. So that's why he's looking at the small, as we're seeing in that. Uh, secondly, the second thing that's really important for us to see here is that it's in the small that we have the ability to develop patterns. You can't develop patterns with great. Um, let's just say everyone here at some day in their life will inherit a million dollars or five million dollars or something and you receive one, you know, what are you going to do with it? I, I, I guarantee you we'd be all over the board what we would do with it here because we, we haven't developed a pattern. If we haven't developed a pattern, whatever our pattern is that we've developed, that's how it's going to be reflected when we finally get something big. Most of us don't have something big to start with. So what is the Lord looking at? What you do with the 24 hours that all of us have? What you do with the income, whether it's Social Security income or your job or whatever, uh, what you do with that as it is. We develop patterns, whether we know it or not, and God is looking for a godly pattern, for, for a process that we can do. We all have the same number of hours in the day uh, with which to work. We all have uh, probably meager resources at some time where we're just trying to figure out, and your priorities emerge very quickly. Even if you make very, very little money. Your priorities will, will emerge. If you, if, you don't, if you don't have a lot of skill and ability to rely upon your whole life, then the Lord is looking at what you're going to do with the little bit that you have. What is the pattern that you're doing in your life right now that reflects the goodness and glory of the Lord that God can build upon? That God can take and, and explode into something even greater than what you can imagine. So Marlene and I have had the privilege uh, to uh, travel all over the world. We've been to, I don't know, around 100 countries or something like that. And, and uh, all over the world, we've, I've spoken in churches all over. I've been a 
bishop, a superintendent, a missionary, an educator, pastor, church planter, have done lots of things in lots of different places. And our kids, we drug our kids with us when they were small. They kind of do their own thing. By the way, all of our children live here in Spokane now, which is awesome to have everybody on the same side of the country. Uh, they've been scattered around as well, and they've all had very uh, diverse experiences. Um, so we thought about this. One day, I had a devotional time with our children when they had already married, they'd gone off, they had come back home, and we were gathered together in the room, and I was thinking about all the great things, the big things, the powerful things, the marvelous things. We've met royalty. We've met dignitaries in various countries. We've had uh, the experiences of seeing, you know, many of the kind of the great sites in the world. We've, we've uh, been to the, the pyramids of Egypt and the Taj Mahal in India, and we've seen the, the Ganges River and watched the people that are trying to go through healing there. We've been up to the to the uh, Yellow River in, in China. We've seen the dividing line of, of, uh, of the, the country in that particular way. We've been places in the Middle East. We've seen the, the persecuted church and places. Uh, we've been in pretty dark places as well as very bright places, but we've had all of these uh, glorious and exceptional kinds of experiences. So I was talking to my kids that evening, and I was thinking about all of the stuff that we've been privileged to be able to do and to see, and I asked them the simple question, of all of the things that we've done, what's been the most, what's left the biggest impression on you, the biggest impact in your life? And my oldest son, Luke, looked at me and he said, devotions every night. That's not what I was thinking. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, Dad, those things were all fun. But they're very momentary. And you, you asked the question, what impressed you or impacted you the most? And it was this pattern of every evening before, after dinner, it was sometime before bed, we'd gather the family together, we'd read scripture, we'd pray, we'd talk about the meaningful things of the day and where we could see the Lord in it and how we could help people in the process um, using our, our gifts, our abilities, our talents, or, or our activities and our engagement relationally with people, um, we would talk about those things, and we'd pray for people, and we'd pray for one another, and we'd worship the Lord. Marlene would sit down at the piano often and play, and we'd sing some songs, or I would sit down with the guitar and play, and we would sing some songs, and, uh, and we had a marvelous times. And he said, Dad, it's in those moments that day after day after day, you embedded that in us, that God deserves our honor, our glory, and our praise, and it's not just an occasional thing. It's not just on Sundays. Every day. You see what, unwittingly, I was just doing that because I felt as a Christian father and husband, it was my responsibility to lead my family spiritually, and so I was just doing those things. Sometimes they were 10 minutes long, sometimes they were an hour, hour and a half. I mean, it just kind of, we kind of went the direction that, that the Lord was leading us at the time. But he was right. It was, there was a pattern that was established there that was transferable to my children. Seeing Imelda Marcos in the Philippines when we were there, or uh, seeing the uh, uh, royalty from Sweden and Greece and stuff like that, I mean, that, that's just a momentary snip. But the Lord is looking for small because he's wanting to see uh, what we do with it, if we can be entrusted with more. That was the first element I was telling you. 
And he wants to see if we have small enough, what we're going to do with the increments that we have on a daily, what kind of a pattern are we going to establish in our life? And so God is not looking at all the stuff you have to offer. He's, he's looking at the small stuff that you have to offer and how you offer it on a regular basis. Well, there's a third reason, and which I think is probably uh, key to this whole understanding. And it comes out of the, out of the book of uh, Judges. And Judges chapter 6 and 7, the story about um, a guy named Gideon. Gideon was one of the judges that's mentioned there. How many have heard that story before or read it? Okay. Uh, seven of you. Eight of you. Okay, well, let me explain to the rest of you. Uh, or are you not hand-raising people? You might not be hugging people or hand-raising people, but I'm going to make you hug and hand-raise before we're done this summer, okay? It's inevitable. So Gideon, uh, Gideon was the perfect guy to lead um, the people of Israel for the very reason that I'm mentioning this, um, against the Midianite and Amalekite army had joined the Midianites that came against them. And it says that the people were beyond number. In other words, there was a large group of Midianites and Amalekites that came to destroy Israel. And Gideon did not want to be a leader of this. They had no judge at the time in Israel. Everybody was doing what they thought. There was no leader. There no king, no judge, no nothing. And uh, the Lord needed to raise somebody up. So he finds a guy named Gideon. And, um, and through the whole sequence of events in chapter 6, you can see how he's despised by people, and uh, he's called Jeroboam, and uh, he, anyway, he's, he doesn't seem, he seems like he's destroying the idols of other idol worshipers and all that kind of thing, but he's an insignificant person. All you have to do is read that story, and, and here's something that almost everybody I've ever heard read it passes right over. It says, Gideon was from the least tribe of all of Israel, and of the tribe, he was from the least clan of all the clans in that tribe. And of that, those clans, of that clan that he was in, he was of the least family. And then it tells us he was the least within his own family. In fact, he's calling right now. He's going to let us know. That, yeah, that's me. That's a description of my life. Okay. All right. <laughs> Somebody's got a phone going. All right. So, uh, happy Father's Day. That's what that is, I'm sure. Yeah, that's right. So he's the least of the least of the least of the least, and guess what God says? Perfect. But, but Gideon himself is thinking large. He's not thinking small. So he sends message out to all the tribes of Israel, and he, he summons them to come and meet him uh, close to the Valley of Jezreel, and they were going to go to war. And 32,000 people responded. That's a pretty good-sized army, right? 32,000 people came, showed up to fight. And guess what God said? He's already dealing with the least of the least of the least of the least. And he looks at the size of the army and says, too big. So I, what I want you to do is I want you to tell everybody who is filled with fear, who's frightened, to go home. There were 32,000 people. It says that 20... 2,000 of them went home. That leaves how many? 10,000. we got some mathematicians here. 10,000 people are left. So he's paring it down. He's paring the group down significantly. Um, 
And so he's thinking, how are we going to win the, the war with this? Well, the Lord does something additionally. He said, you still have too many. What I want you to do is I want you to take the people down to the spring. There was a spring there. They, that's where they gathered. It was the spring of Harot. And, uh, and he said, I want you to take people down to the spring, and I want you to have them drink. And so 10,000 people went down to the spring to drink. There's two ways that you could reasonably drink if you're away from home and you don't have any utensils. There were two ways of being able to do it. No cups, no uh, pitchers or anything else. There was the clean way to do it, which all Jews knew. You'd never use your hands unless they were ceremonially washed uh, to drink anything out of because you may have touched a dead animal, an unclean person, etc. Any number of things. We're just not talking about dirt and grime and COVID germs or something like that. We're talking about uh, that you may have touched something that is unclean in the eyes of the Lord, and to put stuff in your mouth with unclean hands is it's, it's, it's wrong. It's spelled out very clearly in the Levitical law. So God took the people to go down to the water, told them, take down, tell them to go down to the water and drink. And 9,700 of the 10,000 people did it right. They got down on their hands and their knees, because the greater likelihood that they were, since they were eating with unclean hands, uh, that they would be drinking out of a, a fresh spring and it would be clean it was the appropriate way to do it. So they got down on their hands and their knees, got their clothes all dirty, and, uh, and they drank water that way. There were 300 lazy, irreligious, not very spiritual Jews that just knelt down, scooped up some water, and it says lapped it like a... a out, like a dog, you know, out of their hand. They just lapped the water up like that. And God took the least of the least of the least, and then he looked at the 300 very unclean people who were the least of that whole batch, and he said, perfect. And in very short order, with 300 people, um, Gideon and these lazy, dirty, filthy Jews who just obeyed the, the Lord uh, defeated this vast army. A key verse to me that tells us um, why God did it that way, why God looks at the small, everything that we've been saying here this morning, comes out in chapter 7, verse 2. It's the transition between the 32 to the 10,000. God lets them know why he's paring this group down. And this is what it says in the contemporary English version. It says, I could not let you win this battle with so many. Or you would think by our own strength and power, we won the battle and that I had nothing to do with it. This is what God says. I can't let you do this. If I let you do with greatness what you think might be, maybe your greatness contributed to, then you're going to become what? You're going to be arrogant. You're going to be self-sufficient. You're going to say, it's on by my own strength, my own ability, my own power. And God gives us a key in that verse for the rest of the scriptures, why God is constantly looking at the small. Why he takes people like Abraham and says, okay, you're a big shot in that place, but I'm going to take you to a whole new country where you don't know the language, you don't know the culture, you're leaving your family, your people, uh, your tribe, you're leaving everything to go to a place I show you. Why he would take somebody who was, who was really powerful at one time in Egypt, raised in Pharaoh's household, and then he becomes... He becomes persona non grata to the Egyptians and he's out watching sheep and he becomes a nothing. And God says, perfect. 
why somebody like Esther said, who, me? God says, perfect. Why somebody like Ruth, who's not even, she wasn't a Jewess. She was a Moabitess. Why me? Why marry this young virgin who just seemed to amount to nothing? And you, me? And God says again and again and again and again, yes, you, you're perfect. Um, it's extremely important for us to understand that God will use you in your areas of strength. Obviously, he gives us spiritual gifts, and he gives us those to use. Some people he gives great wealth to, and he gives it to them to use uh, for him and for his glory. But don't ever think that the largest contribution you will make in this life ever has to do with anything big. But it's when you, in your smallness, you know, how do we come to know Christ? What, what do we do? We humble ourselves. Remember all the reversal statements of Jesus? Anybody that wants to be great must become the least or the servant of all. The person who, who's found. The people who are found are lost, but the people who are lost are found. Jesus says a person that humbles himself becomes the greatest. The person who perceives it. See, Jesus says five different ways. The weak become the strong. Uh, in five different reversal statements, Jesus essentially says, no, what I'm looking for is I'm looking for the humble, the weak, the people who are fragile. I'm looking for the person who doesn't have significant to give and then see what they do with what they do have. The small qualifies us for the greater. See what they develop as patterns that will carry over as they're grabbed a hold of by the Lord, their righteousness, uh, the pattern of righteousness. And then God can't give us too much or, or it's going to be used inappropriately. So, um, do you remember when there was the tsunami and it, uh, it hit Japan and destroyed those, that area where there, were, uh, there was a nuclear plant there? Do you remember that? Some of you remember that a handful of years ago. Well, prior to that, um, there was the Haiti earthquake and there were a lot of people that died during the Haiti earthquake. Remember that? Well, our churches in Haiti, we have about uh, between 250 and 300 churches that are your sister churches that are in Haiti. I was a bishop at the time. I was overseeing uh, work in the global church. Well, anytime there was a natural disaster like that, we would, uh, we would commission funds. We'd go in to do relief development. We, lot, we built lots of houses, rebuilt churches, et cetera, in Haiti. We helped them out as much as we could. And other countries around the world always respond to those crises as well. And, uh, and they, they helped out. But... Um, when the tsunami hit in Japan, and you have to understand, Japan is not a poor country. Economically, they're similar to or a little further along than we are in some particular ways. Well, when the tsunami hit, I asked the, our Japanese church, I said, what do you need? And they said, oh, we're, we're fine, we're fine. And, uh, and I said, uh, okay, if there's anything we could do for you. And they said, no, no, just pray for us. And so we published it in our denominational magazine, and we kind of let people know to pray for the church there and, and uh, dealing with all of that. And uh, the church in Haiti found out about the disaster in Japan, and they knew that they had been helped so much. And they said, we need to do something. So they took offerings in all the churches, more than 200 churches. You know how much they came up with? $118. 
Less than a buck a church. So I took the money with me, and I took it over and gave it to them because they'd raised that for the Japanese church. And the Japanese felt kind of a little embarrassed by receiving a $118 gift from a very poor area. And uh, I thought that was the end of the story. Well, I happened to, we had two more disasters that took place shortly after that. And uh, there was this huge tsunami and, and uh, typhoon that hit India and Indonesia and lots of places. And, and, uh, and everywhere, people told the story about the Haitian church. And we raised a record number of dollars to help people in Sri Lanka and India and Indonesia and Malaysia and different places. It was because the Lord had taken the small and he made it so influential that it was transformative. And that's what the Lord is looking for us. As a pastor, when I pastored for all those years that I was a pastor, I used to have this principle in the back of my mind, so I'd, I'd ask somebody in the congregation, have you thought of maybe working with our children? Oh, no, no, I'm, not, I'm horrible. I, I'm not very good with children, etc. I just smile as I think of God saying, perfect. And the, and the churches that say, yeah, we're not a very wealthy church. We don't have a whole lot, so I don't think we could really do a lot for our community, etc. And I just envision the Lord saying, perfect. And the people that say, oh, I can't share my faith because I'm not, as Pastor Matt, I'm not as good a talker as you are. And I don't come up with, all, I don't have all the scripture verses at, at call, you know, at my beck and call. And you know what I think the Lord is saying? Perfect. You're the only person that knows the people that you know. And you're the only person that has your own faith walk and experience with God. You're the one that I'm going to use significantly in the lives of other people that, that these others can't. So as we close, or I'm going to have the worship team come up forward. As we close our service here, what I want us to do is I want us to reorient our thinking to, instead of saying, I don't have a lot to give, start saying what I have, I'm going to start using in a, in a way that will develop patterns, where I demonstrate my faithfulness, where I can be entrusted with something. And then I'm going to just watch and see how the Lord puts me in environments that might make me very uncomfortable. In fact, you might say, I'm like Gideon. I'm the least of the least of the least of the least of a lot of people in my family or maybe even in his church family. And to you, I would say that's perfect. Just listen to how the Lord is going to use you, and he'll use you greatly. I want you to stand with me, if you would. We're going to pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise as we gather together, as we sing this closing song, we get ready to be dismissed. Lord, I pray that you would, we would take out of our mind, out of our thinking, this whole notion that we have to have something significant to offer. We have what we do have maybe small, it might be mustard seed faith, it might be uh, a little bit of yeast, it might be just a little uh, a handful of loaves and fish, but Lord, you can do great things with very little. And we don't want to receive the credit anyway for the things that, uh, that you have in store that you can do in greatness. So Lord, right now, there are people that are with me right now that are praying and saying, God, would you take the little that I have and make it much? Lord, uh, receive glory and praise and honor out of what I have to offer. And I'll give you thanks and praise 
for your transformational work doesn't just transform my heart and my life, but you can transform what I have into something great for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.